we wrap up our mini-series of NCAA tournaments from the past as we have a friend from the podcast back on here, Jeremy Rosenberg. Jeremy, it's been eight long months. It feels good to finally talk sports again. It, it really does. It, it has been eight long months, absolutely. So, yes, uh, good to talk sports and good to talk about uh, NCAA tournament on a Selection Sunday. Yeah, no, it feels good. As of this taping, yes, it's on Selection Sunday. And, man, going back to the past years, I've done the 2020 tournament that never was. That's out already, so you can go on the Apple Podcast and listen to that at your, at your leisure. The 2005 one will come out before this one, so... It's good to relive this in a year in which we get the NCAA tournament back. But, I mean, the 1996... Yeah, of course. Yeah. 1996... No, I was going to say. Yeah, 1996... No. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say that, to, you know, to me, the uh, mid-90s, this, this is a magical time. You know, this is a... <laughs> you know, uh, I was 22 in 1996, so these were uh, great years and great memories. Right, were you at Eastern Michigan at that time? I was, yes. I was a still a student at EMU, so uh, uh, definitely that tournament was uh, extra special in that sense. Yes, that's when they were still playing their home games at Bowen Fieldhouse? It was, yes. Yeah, it's just, it's, uh, and then Bowen was nothing. Look, Bowen versus the current Eastern Michigan Convocation Center, we're going to get kind of geeky about you know mid, mid-level Mac basketball, but it's a perfect example of a place with character and atmosphere versus a place that's a nice, big, beautiful place but has no atmosphere and feels totally sterile. Uh, so college basketball kind of loses something when these old field houses get closed down. Um, and, you know, an Eastern Phil Bowen field house, they, they don't fill. <laughs> don't fill their current facility. We'll just say that. Yeah, no, most definitely, yeah. Being a student later on in my time at EMU, I, I would go in there and cover certain events for the Eastern Echo newspaper, like gymnastics and track and field. And it's just weird to think being in there, I was like, man, this facility once housed a basketball team. That was great. And it's like, I'm, I'm just like always imagining how, how it would look in there, you know, for court. It, it, it looked strange. We should talk about that sometimes. It, it looked like a basketball court rigged in the middle of a uh, track and field house, which is what it was. Um, but still, it had that 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 quirky old school charm about it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. But a lot of it's just the memories of watching those uh, teams play there. Um, you know, those were some really uh, fine basketball teams. Yes. And yeah, we could do a podcast now at any given point. But anyways, let's get back to the 1996 NCAA tournament. That year, hey, a lot of... A lot of great players that year in the NCAA tournament. The number one seeds that year were UMass, which people think, well, UMass. I mean, how are they a great team back then? Well, it was easy. They had a rising star in Coach John Calipari. They had a superstar in Marcus Camby that could block shots left and right and actually could score a little bit in college. And you had had Kentucky as another number one seed with Rick Pitino. And you had UConn as the number one seed in the Southeast Regional, which, yeah, there used to be a thing such as the Southeast Regional. Now it's just <laughs> East, Midwest, West, South. And in the West Regional, your number one seed was Purdue, the Fighting Gene Cadys. Yes, they had great teams back then in the 90s. <laughs> they, still, they, they, they did, yeah. They still do now, but not to where they would be a one or two seed every year. I always think of those days of Quanzo Martin and Glenn Robinson. So, so, yeah. So, they were all uh, number one seeds that season. And looking at the bracket, saw some uh, notable first-round matchups that I wanted to focus on from that year. 
And to me, you can't start a recap of the 1996 NCAA tournament without Princeton-UCLA. Remember, UCLA came in as the defending national champions the year before and brought back the majority of its roster. And they're going up against a Princeton-led team by Pete Carrill that liked to play it possession by possession and would just run that shot clock down. Going into that game, even knowing the, the two different styles, did you think Princeton even had a chance? Uh, no. <laughs> I did. And, and, you know, Princeton uh, had come close in previous years, most notably against Georgetown um, a few years, years before. But you always felt that, uh, you know, Princeton was, was uh, a novelty in a, in, a, in a lot of ways. I mean, they certainly played a uh, very uh, fundamentally sound version of basketball and uh, had a uh, very uh, definitive style, uh, which threw other teams for a loop. Um, so I guess it shouldn't have been as uh, much of a surprise as it was. But, you know, the other side of that coin is what you mentioned, Gino, was talking about UCLA. Uh, this is one of the storied programs in all college basketball. And you had Toby Bailey and Charles O'Bannon and Cameron Dollar. You had a, uh, a stacked team um, coming back. And, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, I equated running a, uh, playing against that Princeton team the same way a team now in college football has to deal with a triple option team. Like when they play Army or something like that. It's very difficult to prep for um, when executed well, and that's the one thing Princeton really did do that game. When executed well, um, it's it's difficult to, to to deal with. You know, you could put UCLA on a court with Princeton a hundred times, and UCLA would win ninety to eight of them. Um, but boy, that Princeton team that year just simply executed. Um, and it's it's interesting when you look at the box score and you see that like they went six deep that game. I mean, they really kind of stuck with their starters none of them really got into foul trouble or anything like that um it just uh it was sort of a perfect storm for them and uh ucla uh probably uh, a situation where you have that happens in the tournament where a bunch of uh, 18 to 22 year old kids find themselves flat-footed and uh just have a hard time reacting uh and uh princeton like i said was well coached and certainly executing and um you know it was still uh you know you know two-point game right I mean, Princeton wasn't going to blow anybody out. But uh, you could probably tell the way these UCLA uh, guys were used to playing that that kind of extreme slowdown really messed with them. UCLA wanted to run. They wanted to, to dunk on you. They wanted to show off their athleticism, and they didn't get a chance to do that. And it, it sort of doubled down on their frustration that game. Yeah, looking back on it and – just looking at the final play of the game, it's like 18 or 18 seconds left, and Princeton's just dribbling, dribbling the clock out, being patient. And all of a sudden, you see what would be a vintage Princeton play. It would be one of the best cuts I've ever seen in basketball history, using the baseline, which is, like, it's it's insane. But a lot of teams mimic this stuff now these, now these days, and it was an insane bounce pass. And I don't remember who had the game winning the layup, but it was a great bounce pass. Got through the middle of that UCLA defense. I don't know how it happened because I thought watching that through the replays, I thought, oh, maybe somebody would have gotten a hand or a leg on it, kick ball. They'd have to inbound it again, but somehow it got through and just a thing of beauty and it left UCLA stunned. And, and what was it? 
first of all, you're absolutely right. That's, that's what I meant by executing bounce passes like that to the, to the cutting guy. I mean, these, these were things that like Princeton ran flawlessly and you're right. It's like threading the needle, like an NFL quarterback, you know, hitting that tight window on these passes. It's exactly what, what Princeton was able to do. And uh, you, you think to yourself, well, they've been running this stuff all game long. Can't UCLA adapt? Well, you brought up the perfect point, Gino. Even the game-winning play, yes, it was a backdoor cut, but it was it wasn't it was improbable. We'll just we'll just put it put it put it that way. Um, and uh, you, you know, as far as uh, you know, UCLA was, was was concerned. I'm sure there was still a sense that they're they're down there. There's 18 seconds left, and just disbelief. How did we get into this situation? Um, so there's probably a part of them that just wasn't a hundred percent mentally focused on that play. Uh, and you know, just the fear, you know, at, at some point you have to imagine fear is in these guys. Like we don't want to be, what are we talking about, about this tournament? First thing, you know, 24 years later, these guys got knocked off by, by Princeton. It's etched forever in basketball history. That's uh, what the, uh, this UCLA team is remembered for. And you probably bet the psychological weight of that was weighing on them in some way that, uh, we can't lose this game. It'll be historic upset. And you start thinking like that, you start playing not to lose, playing out of fear. Uh, you know, we saw, we've all seen this in sports before, Gino, and you certainly know this. You're probably going to lose if you go with that attitude. And, and through it all, UCLA still had a chance with two seconds left to at least tie the game or win it. And Toby Bailey got the ball, and Princeton's defense smothered him. And forced him into a very bad look, and it wasn't even close. He airballed it, and next thing you know, Princeton, they pulled the impossible. They knocked out the defending national champions 43-41. And you can actually make the argument that was kind of the, begin, the beginning of the decline of UCLA basketball. And it almost feels like they've, they've had a couple of years of Ben Howell here and there, but it feels like they haven't gotten their groove back completely since. Yeah, I mean that's you know I, I guess I never really thought about that, but in so many ways you're you're right. Those uh, Jim Herrick teams of the '90s um, were sort of, uh, and as much maligned as Jim Herrick was at the time, um, you, you know those were sort of the last uh, greatness out of UCLA teams. Um, you know, once the O'Bannon brothers were gone, um, it seemed like uh, it was sort of a steady decline for a long time, like you said, with a few little uh, upticks here and there. Um, but yeah, you know, you know, UCLA and basketball is a lot like, uh, you know, Texas and football or something like that, um, where you, uh, you know, okay, they're down, but any minute now, this program should be back up. Right. I mean, this is LA, this is, this is the, the, you know, the winningest, uh, as far as championships are concerned, program in college basketball. Um, but you're right. Uh, lowly Princeton knocked them back and, uh, they, you're right. They kind of haven't been the same since, since then. And a takeaway from that game was that it also represented the birth of Gus Johnson. This was his first year calling games with the NCAA tournament for CBS. And I'll never forget that call. And it was like, man, like if they give him more tournament assignments, this could be a future star in the making. And plus, he's a Detroiter. Yes. Uh, you know, look, Gus Johnson, one of those guys who lets, lets, lets the emotion carry him away sometimes. And I think that's what you love him for, right? Yes. I mean, you know, but also Gus Johnson is uh, very good with uh, sort of his, uh, you know, way of using the language, talking about basketball and that kind of a thing. 
Um, so yeah, he's 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 a lot of fun as an announcer. And I think Quinn Quinn Buckner was uh, announcing with him yes, that, that, that that year. And Quinn Buckner's another one who you're probably not going to make your top tier of college basketball announcers, but a guy who would get overcome with emotion and just. Um, kind of just react like a fan sometimes as opposed to an, an, an analyst. And it was just kind of fun to watch those those two together. Yeah, believe it or not, he's still announcing to this day. He's an analyst for the Indiana Pacers games on Fox Sports Indiana. That's great. Hey, Quinn has tons of personality. There's, there's, there's no reason why a guy like that can't be, uh, you know, a, 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 a beloved announcer for a team like 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 the Pacers. Um, he just, uh, like I said, he sometimes lets, lets the emotion carry him away, um, which, you know, can, can wear, wear you out after a while. But, um, you know, as far as, uh, college basketball is concerned, it seems to fit. Yeah. That was the night game in Indianapolis at the then RCA dome, which is now a parking lot. But let's go back to earlier that day. It was a Thursday, first day of the first full day of the NCAA tournament in 1996, the day game. The 9-8 matchup, Eastern Michigan and Duke. As a student as a student at that time, did you really think you had a chance of being Duke? Even though it wasn't a vintage Duke team, Grant Hill was gone at that point, Christian Leitner was gone, Cherokee Parks, Bobby Hurley, go on and on. Yes, I will say I thought we did have a chance to beat Duke. This was a Duke team that was down, and this, this Eastern team was uh, a special team. Um, I couldn't wait to, to get up and uh, slug it out with Duke. I felt that, that, that this was uh, a real opportunity for, uh, for Eastern to show that uh, this specific team could punch in weight classes well above where you would expect them to be. And, uh, yes, as a student, I was uh, in the RCA Dome uh, for that game, and uh, it was a great atmosphere. Um, it was uh, – you know, there were lots of Indiana locals there. You know, it's one thing you appreciate, and I think it's going to uh, really uh, show up, uh, assuming they allow any fans uh, this year, which I think they, they are. Um, these, I remember when I was at the game, sitting behind us were these, like, 70-something grizzled old Indiana college basketball fans who didn't really know anything about any of these teams, just loved college basketball and showed up to watch for the day. And so I could hear them commenting to, be, to, to behind me and surprised at Eastern all game long. Derek Dial would go up and put back a dunk. They'd be like, oh, that guy's really athletic. And, uh, you know, they were, uh, as was most of the crowd that game, mesmerized by what Earl Boykins did that day. Um, you know, and that's that's when you say, could Eastern beat Duke? And it's like, yeah, they could. Because no no matter how hard you tried to prepare for Boykins, you, you, you just, if you didn't know what you were going up against until you faced it, I mean, the handle that guy had on the ball is probably still the best I've ever seen. Um, the, the, the quickness, and then you threw in the scoring ability of a guy like Brian Tolbert, who is just a pure, like, a pure scorer, but a guy who could score. He could drive to the hoop and, and, and put it off the glass. He could drain a three. He could get to the free throw line. Tolbert had a complete offensive game. And putting him beside Boykins um, almost made that backcourt, um, you know, I'm not going to say unstoppable because they they did eventually lose. Uh, but um, you know, as far as a team like Duke that was not um, up to their usual standard, they 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 didn't know what they were in for. Yeah, Eastern and Duke were tied at halftime, and Eastern 
developed a 10-point lead in the second half, but had it cut to two possessions with seven minutes left. Did you think at that point that there was any fear that Duke would somehow become Duke and they would come from behind and win the game? You know, okay, so the first half, Eastern came out flat-footed. Um, maybe it was the pressure, maybe it was just the tournament, maybe it was uh, Duke was a bit better, you know, than they were used, used to playing. Duke had a big guy in the middle, Greg Newton, who wasn't very mobile, but, uh, you know, he certainly occupied uh, part of the paint, was difficult to deal with. And Duke had athletes, they had Rick Price, they had Jeff Cable, they, they, they had guys who could play. Um, I will say, though, once the second half started, Eastern came out, you know, with clearly a spring in their step that Duke did not have. They were getting all the loose ball. Theron Wilson was back there blocking shots. Uh, no, even when it was within two possessions, I just I, it, honestly it looked like what played out. Eastern Michigan was a better basketball team that year than Duke. Period. Yeah, Theron Wilson had five blocks in that game too, which again that was that was his legacy from Eastern Michigan. His ability to block shots, and I believe he had a younger brother or older brother that was there. Uh, not what he played. I'm, I'm not sure about that. Okay. Uh, you know, I will say this about Wilson's block shots is, um, you know, when you add in those athletic guards you were talking about, Boykins and Tolbert Dial, Wilson's block shots just happened. They, they always seem to spring the fast break. Um, so it wasn't just, oh, Wilson would fire it out of bounds and a big dramatic block shot, but the other team still got the ball. Wilson was good at just flinging that thing back out the center, um, you know, by, you know, in a place where his guards could get the ball and spring the fast break. And, uh, you know, another guy great on the fast break was Torrey Mills. I mean, he was a dunking machine that, that, that year. Um, and so, uh, you know, again, uh, I think a team like Duke was not ready for the athleticism Eastern uh, was bringing in that game. And then to have a guy like Darren Wilson who could, who could block the shots and, and, and cause havoc in the middle in his own way. Um, yeah, it was uh, – it, you know, and it, it, it was great to see a lot of those guys playing at their best. You know, a couple of years later, they played MSU in the tournament and lost in the first round, and they did not play well. Um, now, a lot of that had to do with MSU. Uh, but um, that Duke game, it was really great to see that team, especially in the second half, play to their full potential. Yeah, they ended up winning that game. And, and I'm glad you brought up the Michigan State game because to this day, that was their last tournament appearance in 1997 or 98. It was 98 when they were in uh, D.C. Yes. Yeah, so 98 was their last tournament appearance to this day. So these, yep. run, these runs in the 90s were very cherished, I'm sure, for you as a student. Right. You take it for granted. I mean, you know, you, you, you think, you know, oh, Eastern Michigan will be back or, you know, whatever. You're talking about UCLA and, 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 and they'll be back to dominance. No, no it just shows you, you can you can enjoy these things while they happen because you don't know when it's when it's going to be, be coming back. Um, Eastern had a bit of a perfect storm. They had a coach in Ben Braun who was, um, you know, a very, very good basketball coach and had been with the program for a long time. And they struck gold on a guy like Boykins that other people just always five five. We don't want to take a chance on this guy. Uh, fine. The guy went on and had a 12-year NBA career. I mean, seriously. I mean, the the fact that they overlooked on a guy like that, and then a guy like Derek Dial, uh, who how he slipped through um, Big Ten schools is just utterly beyond me. Because as a guard, he was uh, he wasn't just a scorer. He could rebound. He could defend. He could do it all. Uh, so Eastern got really I'm not gonna say lucky because uh, Ben Braun knew what he was doing when he recruited these guys. Uh, but it was sort of a uh, a nice 
uh, convergence of a couple of different uh, people and personalities and things that, uh, you know, spoiled us as, as Eastern fans. Yeah, most definitely. They ended up winning 75-60, to 60 and they advanced to the second round of that tournament where they would face top-ranked UConn after being Colgate. A little bit closer than expected, but they hung on for the nine-point win. What was that like being there to watch some of that game, if you were even there for that part of it? I was, yes. It, you know, do you know the 1990s were an innocent time before 9-11? Uh, I remember me and my friend snuck a bottle of Seeger gin into the RCA Dome. Uh, <laughs> that game, nice. you know, no one's, no one's patting you down, uh, you know. <laughs> so, yes, I was at that game, and I do have memories of it, although the Seagrams was flowing quite heavily in the second half. Uh, Eastern came out uh, on fire in the first half. I couldn't miss. They were, I think they were up by 13 or 15 or something at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, but that UConn team, um, you know, well, you gotta, you know, they were the number one seed for a reason. They had Ray Allen, man. Travis Knight. They, they, they did have Ray Allen. And uh, Jerome Sheffer, I, I, I believe, was the other guard uh, on that team. He didn't have any kind of pro career, but he was, a, he was a fine college player. And I think he was like 6'4", 6'5", running the point, yeah. which caused a, a matchup problem for, uh, for, for, for Boykins. Although, you know, Boykins had a, had a great game. Um, so, you know, it, it was one of those situations where I felt, and funny, years later, uh, a lot of the Eastern uh, people, uh, excuse me, around the Eastern program, um, felt that that team was under as a nine seed or as an eight seed. Um, that bumping into UConn that early really wasn't that fair to that team. That they should have been like a ten seed or something, or a, or a, or a uh, not not a ten seed, a seven seed or a six seed, uh, where they wouldn't have had to bump into a number one seed so early. And then that team was certainly had the talent to make it to the Sweet Sixteen, uh, which. Uh, Gary Waters, the old assistant coach, when I had a chance to interview him years later, uh, was adamant that not only was that team Sweet 16 capable, maybe even better, but the team the years beyond were Sweet 16 capable. So, um, but you know, it is what it is. You know, they got seated where they got seated. They beat Duke and uh, they uh, ran into a great team in UConn. Uh, but that Eastern team, hey, congratulations to them. They go toe to toe with Duke and UConn two of the uh, great programs in all of college basketball in the 96 tournament. That, that's something I don't know if we're going to see from Eastern again. For, I mean, I don't know. Yes, I yeah, I don't know if, if we'll ever see that again, to be very honest. I mean, this, this was right. a, a special time for EMU fans and EMU students like you that went there. So charge those memories. It's, it's going to be a while because they're likely going to have to get a new head coach in the present day, and they'll have to rebuild from scratch. Yeah, you know, and also in retrospect, you know, UConn had to forfeit those games um, due to some NCAA violation. I forget which player of theirs was uh, technically in violation. So, you know, years later when you look back and you say, okay, here's this Eastern Michigan team that was achieving the most they could achieve, um, you know, something that's historical for uh, for the program. Uh, and, you know, they ended up losing to a team that had to forfeit the game because they were cheating and had an ineligible player. I forget the exact issue. Uh, but uh, it's just frustrating to look back and have that kind of thing be the case. Um, and, and to know that that Eastern team could have made a deeper run. Yeah, most definitely, man. We'll, we'll never know how that run would have been, but UConn, in that time, did advance to the Sweet 16 to play Mississippi State, led by Eric Dampier. 
uh, a legend in the SEC. He was a dominant force up front, and that would lead to that matchup in the Southeast region. But I want to focus on the other matchups going into that Sweet 16. Uh, some other notable matchups. In the East, you had UMass, the top seed. They were expected to make it there, but crazy to think two years later, you go from a national championship to all of a sudden being a Cinderella, and the number 12 seed Arkansas Razorbacks were the Cinderella indeed. And, mm-hmm. yeah, it was like, wow, okay, well, you think maybe Ar- Arkansas would have a chance somehow against UMass? And then you had another notable matchup. You had Georgia, who knocked out the first number one seed in the tournament in Purdue. So out of nowhere, you got Georgia and Syracuse in a Sweet 16 matchup out west. Then you had Kansas-Arizona, which that was a very intriguing matchup, looking at all the talent from those two teams combined. You had, at that point, if not mistaken, Jacques Vaughn, Scott Pollard, right for friends from Kansas. Then Arizona, you had Miles Simon. You had uh, Michael Dickerson. I could go on and on with that. Like, so you have some good matchups going into the Sweet 16. How excited were you going into it, even with EMU not being a part of it? Uh, well, I mean, you, you know, Sweet 16 is always exciting. It's, it, it's one of the best weekends in all of sports. Um, you know, you get those games and then the regional finals. A uh, couple uh, thoughts on some of the games you mentioned. Uh, Purdue, uh, you know, well, Maryland-Baltimore County was our first 16 seed to win, but that Western Carolina-Purdue game, Purdue won that by two points. Um, so we almost had our first 16-over-1 upset that year. And when something like that happens, you do wonder about the next round. And sure enough, Tubby Smith and Georgia uh, put Purdue out of their misery um, pretty early. Uh, you talk about Arizona. Uh, when we think about Arizona now, we think, oh, well, yeah, Arizona. You know, Lute Olson won all these titles. And, and, you know, but back then, that was not the case. Arizona had not won. Arizona was a traditional disappointment. We had knocked out early. I remember specifically Steve Nash and Santa Clara knocked Arizona out. Um, you know, And this was a great Arizona team. They had Sean Elliott, and they had, uh, oh, forgive me for forgetting, no. like Judd Bushler and guys like that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Knocked out by uh, Santa Clara. So, um, nah, you know, Arizona, there was no like, oh, these are two powerhouses. Arizona was kind of an upstart back back then. Yeah, Damon Stoudemire led them to that year. Yeah. Which, yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> which is weird. You had a run of people named Stoudemire in the, NA, in the NBA, and all of a sudden, no one named Stoudemire ever showed up again. It's, 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 <laughs> someone's got to bring that name alive, make that name ring out again. Yeah, you had Damon, uh, you had Salim, you had Amari. <laughs> yeah, usually, usually if a Stoudemire was good, he was good. Amari Stoudemire was, you know, that guy in his prime was one of the best basketball players you ever would see for a, like a two-year period. I agree on that one. No, most, most definitely, man. But I want to focus specifically on one game in particular from that Sweet 16 that stood out. And that was the Georgia-Syracuse game. And even with how the results played out, it almost felt like that game did put Tubby Smith on the radar and ultimately would lead him to go to Kentucky a couple of years after. And this one was a classic for all the reasons. It looked like Georgia was going to win the game. It looked like they were going to be the ones as an eight seed to advance to the regional finals and continue their improbable run. But then you had, I believe, what was it? It was a shot to go to overtime before what, the game winner that happened with John Wallace, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. 
Yeah, so you, you had that, that that went into overtimes. You had the overtime session there where both teams basically were trading baskets left and right, and then all of a sudden, with like eight, eight, eight or nine seconds left in the game, Georgia drains a three from the baseline. And Georgia's up by one with seconds left, and Syracuse goes right down the court. Mind you, this was in an era where you did you, didn't, you really didn't have a lot of teams taking timeouts whenever that would happen. Now these days, you see that occur. We see 14 timeouts and seven seconds drags out to like 45 minutes. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny looking back at, uh, on this game because, uh, you know, you don't remember, or I, I don't you know, John Wallace, that guy had kind of gone off my radar. But boy, thinking back to that team, he was a beast. He was an absolute monster with those teams. Um, you know, and you look at that that Syracuse team, and you think to yourself, "This isn't the great Syracuse teams." But uh, Wallace was was about as good a college player as you were going to run into that year. And then they had some good complementary talent, like Jason Sapola and Otis Hill. Um, that Georgia team was a uh, typical kind of a good NCAA tournament story of a team that was kind of you know good, but not in the top tier of their conference during the year that really put it all together. Uh, and Shandon Anderson uh, kind of uh, took that team on his back and carried them. And, of course, you're right, Tubby Smith sort of went from, you know, he was known because he took Tulsa uh, to the tournament, did a nice job with them before the Georgia job. But the ability to take Georgia and, and, and move them up the way he did was what made him uh, put, a, put him on Kentucky's radar. Um, but overall, you know, I'm <laughs> looking at that box score, box score, do you know there's a guy named Donovan McNabb who got eight minutes for Syracuse in that game. I had, I had no idea. Yeah, you know, you, you know, I appreciate the athleticism of uh, McNabb, uh, but I didn't know he was a uh, you know backbencher uh, on the basketball team. Pretty, pretty impressive. Yes, I was going. You, you stole that out of me because I was going to mention that. <laughs> like, yeah, he did play basketball too while he played football. I mean, ultimately, he became known more for being a football player. But I believe at that time he was still a freshman or sophomore so you're still an underclassman at that point so yes yeah, so he wasn't yeah, well, he's a, mm-hmm. i was gonna say he was a freshman getting some minutes in a ncaa tournament game so you know clearly uh you know he wasn't just uh an afterthought on that on that team uh sorry to steal that from you but i mean you're right looking at that box store that name donovan Knapp just jumps right up at you you know, you're like, wait a minute. I, it wasn't years later, he, torching Michigan, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, yeah, he had a great top pro career. So then John Wallace dribbles the ball. And it's crazy as a big man. It was weird to see him just dribble like that. And it just felt kind of awkward and clumsy. But then it was like, well, he's got to take a shot at some point. You would think with time left, he would try to go to the rim. But he, I guess he felt it in the moment. He took probably one of the ugliest game-winning shots I've seen in my life. He took literally an off-balance three going forward. <laughs> With still time left in the clock, I'm like thinking, because I do remember watching this as a kid, I'm like thinking, no, it's not going to go in. He has no shot. This is a terrible look, and it's over. Like, there's only going to be a couple of seconds left. Georgia will have the ball. They get fouled. Time runs out, and the opposite occurs, and he pulled the impossible and made a three. And it's two seconds left still on the clock, and Georgia, they tried for one more attempt, but time ultimately ran out on them, and you could feel the emotion at that point. With Syracuse jumping for joy, and then 
Georgia being on the other side of it, thinking we're going to the lead eight, and it gets snatched away at a moment's notice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, you know, that's one of the great uh, aspects of college basketball, of course, is the emotion and the seniors. Uh, one minute you're, you're thinking you're moving on, the next minute your career is over. Um, but that John Wallace shot, it really is a perfect example. You, 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 you hit it uh, of someone just knowing they're on, you know, feeling it. And uh, it didn't matter, falling away, falling forward, two men in his face, whatever. He, he was going to make, he was going to take that shot. Uh, sometimes the best player on the court is the best player on the court, and it's just, it's just obvious, and they take the game over, and that's, that's kind of what happened right there. Yeah, well, while one SEC team didn't have success that night, another did, and Mississippi State pulled off an upset. Number five seed Mississippi State knocked off UConn sixty to fifty-five. And while Eric Dampier is the star of that team, it was Daryl Wilson that took over and scored 27 points, which was a game high in that one. And in defeat, Ray Allen scored 22. For everything that UConn put in that season, how disappointing was that for them to see their run end in the Sweet 16? Oh, I'm sure it was uh, very disappointing for them. Um, they, you know, not only did they have Ray Allen growing Jeffrey, Travis Knight was a uh, – was a uh, you know a very good center in the middle, and they did lose uh, uh, Ricky Pierce, I believe. But no, I forget what the guy's name was. It was either Price or Pierce, the uh, backup point guard. Uh, but really, he was the third guard with Allen and Sheffer. Uh, without him there, it did hurt their bench a bit. Um, that game, uh, you're absolutely right about Daryl Wilson. Now, when people looked at Mississippi State, they said to themselves, Dampier and Dante Jones. And I get the feeling that UConn was all in to shut those two down. And there was Daryl Wilson, who just had a great game and took advantage of the fact that he wasn't being uh, guarded as, as closely because Dante Jones and Dampier were uh, attracting so much attention. Uh, so, uh, you know, UConn, it, it, at some point, uh, Ray Allen could only do so much. Uh, he played 40 full minutes, um, you know, and he certainly, uh, you know, he was four for 10 from three three you know he, he, he didn't have a great game but he certainly had a good enough game uh i just don't think he got the uh, supporting uh supporting work around him uh that game sheffer was uh one for seven that just it just they cooled down a bit uh you know maybe uh tussling with emu kind of took something out of him um but you know that's just pure speculation um the truth is mississippi state uh, uh took took advantage of uh, a fact that they were hot, they were having a good run, and they had a guy in Daryl Wilson who stepped up when he needed to. Yep, and then also another notable game from the Sweet 16, the Kansas-Arizona game. That one went down to the wire, and they ended up winning 83-80, to knocking Arizona out the tournament. Of note from that game, a little-known guy who became a star that night, Paul Pierce, with 20 points for Kansas, which was a team high. And then for Arizona in defeat, it was Miles Simon, who finished with 21, but off the bench, Michael Dickerson also had 21 points. Just a lot of stars in that game, and for Kansas to get that win, you're thinking now, well, they're one game away from going to the Final Four against Syracuse. Especially, you know, and granted, that Kansas-Arizona game was a, you know, hard-fought back-and-forth game, but the, the, the dramatic way Syracuse had, had won that Georgia game looking like they were going to lose, coming back, winning in overtime. Uh, a lot of times that drains a team and they just can't get up emotionally uh, the next game. And uh, this is one of those areas where Bayheim seems to be uh, very effective at, is uh, keeping his team focused through the, through the tournament 
and uh, getting his teams to win ugly when they need to. Uh, that's a Jim Beheim trademark uh, when he makes a run. Uh, there's always an ugly game or two in there that Syracuse wins. Um, and I think a guy like Bayheim, you know, knows that uh, if you're going to make a run to the tournament, you're going to have a few games that you're not going to be your best. Your players aren't going to be your best, but you got to somehow, you know, gut your way through it. Um, and uh, I think uh, both Syracuse and Kansas were probably a little let down, um, you know, from the height, you know, from being amped up uh, uh, with their win over Arizona for Kansas and their overtime win, um, that it was bound to be that kind of game. And uh, Syracuse just probably, you know, not not looking back and being able to watch the game start to finish, but probably had the mental toughness edge in that game. Yeah, and Syracuse and Kansas would end up being in the Elite Eight. That was also the Elite Eight where you saw a strange thing occur. Not all number one, but all number two seeds advanced to the Elite Eight. You're thinking, no, we're going to see some, some strange things happen. We'll just see all number two seeds make it into the Final Four. Well, that was nowhere near the case here. As somehow, someway, all number two seeds got put out in the Elite Eight, starting with Syracuse being Kansas 60-57, Mississippi State number five seed upsetting Cincinnati 73-63, denying Bob Huggins of yet another Final Four appearance. It felt yeah. like in that era that Cincinnati, given all the good teams they had in the 90s going into 2000, they should have made the Final Four at least five or six times. <laughs> they certainly could have. But, of course, they had that... Uh... Terrible uh, luck when uh, Kenyon Martin broke his leg heading into its uh, tournament a, a year or two later. Um, that uh, that that probably was the best of all the Cincinnati teams. Yes, the um, 2000 that season. Kind of trailed them. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, the um, 2000. Yep, that opened and that ultimately opened up the door for Michigan State and Tom Izzo to win. Yeah, it did. You're right. Um, you know, the other noticeable thing about the, the uh, Elite Eight games that year was uh, the only real close game was that Syracuse-Kansas uh, game. Uh, sure, Mississippi State won by 10 over Cincinnati. But, you know, Cincinnati, I mean, Kentucky uh, pasted Wake Forest by 20 points. And UMass had no trouble with Georgetown. Uh, so you almost kind of see in that Elite Eight the, 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 the two best teams are, 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 you know, Kentucky and UMass, and they're kind of on a collision course. Yeah, and they would score off not in the national championship game, but in the final four. It almost felt like, in a way, whoever won that game was going to be the national champion, and the national championship would have just been what it was. Like, okay, it's a coronation ceremony. And going into that game in the final four, which, ironically, if I'm not mistaken, was the last one to be played in an arena, which that's it's crazy to think now, but... Yeah, this was the last one to be played in an arena. It was in East Rutherford, New Jersey, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I always think something's missing uh, from, from from that. I, 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 I'm just not a huge fan of, uh, and I know why they do it. I get it. But, you know, the whole big, giant uh, NFL dome stadium for the Final Four, I do miss the, the arenas. Um you know, they, they played one in Denver at McNichols Arena a few years before that. That seemed like just a better atmosphere. Um, uh, but then again, you know, uh, when I was at the RCA Dome that year for that game, that certainly was a uh, was a good atmosphere, and they had a nice setup there. So, uh, you know, of course, at the old uh, Meadowlands Arena in East Rutherford, that's sort of a storied old facility, um, you know, with the parquet floor, uh, in a, you know, it's... Uh, you do miss that, but uh, yeah, that's one of those uh, things from the past where you're just kind of like, "Wow, that's it's just not going to happen again." You know, 
even this year when uh, they probably don't need to play in a dome, uh, they are playing you know, the Final Four at Lucas Oil Stadium. Uh, when really they could play at Hinkle Fieldhouse, and that would probably be pretty cool. It would be, but even in a pandemic, it's all about making money, man. you got to maximize seats, man, given the capacity limits. Yes, for sure. And, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, you can't blame them for that. I mean, you know, the uh, – uh, and you run – you know, people want to go to the games, right? I mean, it's not like they're played in these giant domes and no one's there. They are packed in the guild. It's just weird watching a game. I remember in uh, – I think it was 2010, I went to the uh, – 316 games down in Detroit at Ford Field to watch Steph Curry play, and uh, I was in I was way way up high, and it's just a weird way of watching a basketball game, uh, being like sitting in like way up high in a dome stadium trying to make out what's going on on the floor. Yeah, if I'm um, not mistaken, they didn't even cover the tarp up. They had like everything exposed. If I'm not mistaken, in that one they did. Yes. Yes, it uh, Detroit. Uh, they absolutely had it completely wide open, which again felt a little weird. Uh, when I described the RCA dome, they had a big tarp up and bleachers set up there that made it feel a little bit more intimate. Um, but hey, you know that's that's the nature of it. And, uh, there there are plenty of things to uh, miss about sports. The size of the arenas they're playing. I don't know. Uh, it seems 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 to me like that's just the way it is. We just have to, you know, that's just the way it is. Well, UMass and Kentucky played in the national semifinal. Very close game, but then ultimately Kentucky found a way to pull away, and they won 8-1-74. And the star of the show, which would ultimately become the most outstanding player in the tournament, Tony Delk had 20 points on 7-16 shooting, and then Antoine Walker helped chip in for 14 points. That team was very low at that season. Look at the talent that was across the board here. You had Derek Anderson as your guard, Walter McCarty. Before he got in trouble. Anthony Epps. <laughs> yeah, Anthony Epps. And I think your bench was very loaded then, too. You had Wayne Turner. You had Jeff Shepard. And some guy named Ron Mercer who would become the star. I was about to say, you know, Ron Mercer was uh, probably one of the most talented guys out there. Um, and then they, uh, a little-used freshman named Nazi Muhammad um, who could come in and, and just disrupt things a bit. Uh, but yeah, that was more more so Antoine Walker and uh, Tony Delk's team, um, and of course Walter McCarty, like 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 you mentioned. But Walker was usually usually the best player on the court um, when wherever he was playing, and uh, Tony Delk was a perfect example of. Uh, sure, you got forwards that are really great like Antoine Walker and Walter McCarty, but to win in uh, March in the NCAA, you need to have great guard play, and Tony Delk really brought that. Yeah, and a great guard play continued in the national championship game after Syracuse beat Mississippi State. You had Syracuse and Kentucky showing, having a showdown here. You had, you had uh, Jim Beheim, you had Rick Pitino. Jim Beheim was going for his first national championship at that time, which is crazy to think. It's like, you didn't have a national championship through all this? And then Rick Pitino going for his signature championship. Even through all the times he got to the Final Four of Providence, got close with Kentucky a couple of times going to the Final Four. It was it was going to be somebody's night where they would finally have their breakthrough, but ultimately it would be Rick Pitino and Kentucky as they won 76-67 to 67 over Syracuse. And Tony Delk had 24 points, as I said before, named most outstanding player of the NCAA tournament. But then Ron Mercer, we talked about him moments before, 20 points off the bench. 
And then John Wallace in defeat had 29 points, and Ty Bergen had 19 to contribute for Syracuse. How big was it for the brand of Kentucky to finally get that national championship and for Rick Pitino to get that monkey off his back? Uh, in retrospect, it was, it, was, it, was, it was very big. You know, at the time, Kentucky felt kind of like a villain. You know, uh, Pitino was taking over this, this program that was, uh, you know, reprimanded by the NCAA, to, stay, to, to, to say the least. Uh, Pitino, you know, he's a controversial guy. He was then, he is now. Um, and uh, he drew people who strongly dis- disliked him. So Kentucky had a bit of the aspect of the villain, whereas you're right, Jim Beheim in Syracuse, you look back, and, oh, in 86, they were close, you know, in that Indiana, the key smart game, and, you know, how is Jim Beheim not, not won? Um, so there was sort of a sentimental, uh, you know, hope for Syracuse going into that, that year. But as it was with so many Kentucky teams, years that they've won, um, it just Kentucky was sort of an unstoppable steamroller that year. Um, you know, Syracuse was basically was running the old Danny Manning formula where you take your best player, you hop on that guy's back, and you ride him as far as you can. Uh, now, Wallace took them pretty far. Um, and interestingly enough, Syracuse would do this exact same strategy years later with Carmelo, uh, Carmelo and Anthony, and it would work for them. Um, so, <laughs> you know, Beheim uh, had, you know, figured out what, what, what worked. Um, but um, that was an, uh, compared talent-wise, right, Syracuse versus Kentucky. That was an undermanned Syracuse team um, compared to the talent Kentucky brought when they had a freshman like Ron Mercer that could bring off the bench who probably was as good as anybody on Syracuse except for John Wallace. Uh, so um, it was sort of, uh, it felt kind of inevitable. Um, but the game itself wasn't a, a blowout by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, it was, Tucky kind of had it under control, uh, but it was always close enough that uh, if they got cold and Syracuse got, it got hot, things could have been different. Yeah, and Kentucky, for them, it started a streak of actually getting to the national championship game. They got there three straight years, which is crazy to think. They, they, they basically had their own mini dynasty. They got back the next year, which is an instant classic, when they played Arizona, and that one got the overtime before Miles Simon took over and got his signature championship and got Olsen to his signature one, too. And then next year, with Tubby Smith by his side, Rick Pitino gone to the NBA, trying to be a star at the Celtics. You know how that worked out, but... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Antoine Walker didn't quite work out there as well. As yeah. Kentucky. yeah, he tried to replicate that Kentucky formula. Nah, they didn't. It's not the same. But next year, Tubby Smith was there. They had two championships in three years, being Rick Majerus in Utah. And we've actually talked about that on a previous podcast. You go back in the archives, we talked about the 97-98 Utah team with Chris Kedowitz. You can go back on there if you want full details on that, but. But yeah, but two championships in three years, a good mini run for Kentucky. Uh, definitely. And that was sort of Kentucky back, and that sort of set Kentucky up uh, for the future, right? Um, you know, where after Tubby Smith, and then they would eventually bring in Calipari, and, uh, you know, Kentucky would put another uh, dynasty together in the early 2010s. Um, yeah, it, uh, it did put Kentucky back on the map as a place where uh, ultra-talented basketball players go. And uh, that has not uh, changed since since then. Uh, that Arizona team you're talking about can't not mention Mike Biddy. Uh, yeah, freshman uh, Mike Biddy. Yes, yes, yes. Now Miles Simon was the leader of that team, 
but without Mike Bibby running the point, that Arizona team doesn't doesn't win anything. Yeah, that, um, yeah and yes, always good to bring up Rick Majerus, one of the great personalities in all of college basketball. Uh, gone, gone too soon, uh, but uh, you know it uh, it was uh, certainly a testament to him that he got a Utah team that you know, no one saw that team going to the finals uh, to the finals to take on Kentucky that that, that year. Yeah, well, his legacy still lives on today through Porter Moser, one of his old assistants when he was at St. Louis. He's now at Loyola, and he's doing big things now. He's on the verge of getting them to the second, the second um, NCAA tournament run in four years. Seems seems like it. Loyola is peaking at the right time. Uh, the other legacy of Rick uh, Rick Rick Majerus was, uh, uh, and, you know, I, don't, I know they haven't wanted it yet. But getting St. Louis University basketball back on the map, or on the map in a way, um, he recognized uh, the potential in that program. And it's just kind of a shame uh, that he passed away when he did, because uh, I honestly think a few more years uh, at St. Louis, uh, Rick Majerus could have turned that, that team into a potential, gotten a potential Final Four out of that, uh, out of that group, um, if he was able to continue to run that program. Um, but it didn't happen, and uh, it, it is what it is. But Rick, Rick Majerus is honestly one of those uh, just overall beloved uh, people in college basketball. Uh, you you die, you won't find anyone like that I think of saying something bad about Rick Majerus. I agree, man. Uh, it's hard to believe that we basically went through almost an hour talking about the 1996 NCAA tournament, but it was fun to have you on here, man. Uh, hopefully we'll get yep. to do more of these down the line, especially as we get the spring, we get back to doing more classic college football podcasts. So I'll be, I'll be looking for you at that point, man. I'll, I'll be ready for it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for, uh, you know, fingers crossed, you know, a real college football season coming up in the fall. Uh, yes. boy, wouldn't that be great. And, uh, yes, uh, I definitely look, look forward to, uh, to more uh, discussions and get ready for the, uh, next college football season for sure. And of course, watching uh, March Madness as it starts up uh, this this week. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm looking. I'm looking forward to that, man. After a year of not happening, it. Oh, it's going to be epic this year, man. I mean, it's going to be a lot of fun, man. I'm going to sit back, have a few beers, chill, get away from everything. But yeah, and hopefully you enjoy it too. Yes. Oh, for sure. All right. Thanks for coming on, Jeremy. We'll talk again at some point down the line. All right, Gino. Thank you. <laughs>